Well, back in uh, 2014, there was a lady uh, in France who was playing the lottery. And let me, let me just pause for a minute and say, I'm not recommending that we play the lottery. I'm just telling you a story about a lady who decided to play the lottery. She checked uh, her numbers, and she was overjoyed that her numbers matched the jackpot. And so her life, as you might imagine, was completely uh, changed. She was able to now purchase things that she never would have dreamed that she could have purchased. She went on a uh, quite a shopping spree, and uh, like she had never done before. Um, but after about three weeks, the, uh, the lottery money had not arrived. But can you guess what had arrived? Yeah, a lot of bills, lots and lots of bills showed up, and the husband, her husband was getting a little, little nervous about how all this was going to work out, and he decided he'd take just a little closer look, and sure enough, she missed the jackpot by one number. You know, she was close, but uh, close gets you nothing, right? And so uh, uh, he showed her what he had seen and that she was not going to be getting this money after all, and uh, she had all this debt to pay, but instead of telling the truth, to the companies that she owed money, she decided that she would come up with, a, with another explanation. And she said, oh, someone stole my purse. They used my checkbook. They forged my name, and they bought all these things. But the camera footage from the stores quickly determined that she was lying. And if you look at the picture here that we've got, you'll ultimately see the French police taking her into custody for writing all of these checks that didn't clear the bank and for her dishonesty. Well, I, I give this story to you as an example, as one who went from thinking she had it all to realizing that she had gained nothing. She was living indeed a nightmare. But as we turn to the book of Ruth, we're going to join back up where we left off last week at the end of chapter 1 with Naomi and Ruth, two ladies that really had come back to Bethlehem, and they had literally nothing. But they did have a God who knew where they were. He knew what, what he wanted to unfold in, in their lives, and what they would see was that God had a plan of provision. So even though they were, they were broke, even though they had, they had no hope for, for, for anything out of this world because of the situation they were in, they had a God above this world who had his eye on them. He had a plan of provision, a plan of protection, a plan that would show ultimately that he had not forgotten them. Chapter 1 showed that they had a big need. But chapter 2, as we will see, shows that they had a big God, an even bigger God, to provide for them right when they were in need. This idea today that we're going to be look at, looking at is oftentimes referenced as the providence of God. And this is part of his character, part of his nature. The creator God is, is one who is able to provide for what is needed, working through circumstances, working through situations. And I challenge you as we read through chapter 2, see how many times the providence of God is seen in this chapter. It's seen in the timing of events. It's seen in the, in the people that show up and ultimately in the provision that was made. Providence, defined, comes from a Latin word. It's really a compound word. The, uh, the root word, videre, means to see. It's where we get the word video. 
and then pro, obviously the, the prefix there is, is speaking of, of seeing, or of, of, excuse me, of beforehand. So you put it together and it means to see beforehand, but it's really more than just foreknowledge. We can, we can talk about the foreknowledge of God, and this, this word sounds like it's saying simply to look ahead, but it's much more than that. In fact, the, uh, the Holman Bible Dictionary de- describes and defines providence as this, God's faithful and effective care and guidance of everything which he has made toward the end which he has chosen. Now, this is, this is our God. The God that we serve, the God of Naomi and Ruth, is still the God today that sees where we are, knows what is needed, and is able, is sufficient, is providential in our lives. The end of chapter one, we saw that, uh, or in the, the, the first chapter, we saw that Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their two sons went from Israel to a distant, to a, a different country, the country of Moab. Bethlehem, the city that they lived in, was experiencing a famine. And so they packed up and they left the promised land and they went to Moab, which we called the land of compromise, remember? And that's because it was a land where immorality was prevalent and so was idolatry. In fact, the idolatry was to a point where there was even child sacrifice used as part of their religious practices. So think about where they left and where they went to and what they would have experienced while in the land of Moab. Well, while they were there, Elimelech, the husband, dies, and Naomi is left with her two sons. They, uh, they end up marrying uh, two Moabite women. And as we saw last week, this would have not been the way Naomi would have thought that her life would have gone for her family. But there she was, and she has her sons and her daughter-in-laws, and then her sons die as well. And so now she's left with just these two ladies that uh, one decides to stay in Moab, if you remember Orpah, and the other is Ruth, and Ruth decides that she will go back with Naomi to Israel, to the the city of Bethlehem specifically. Naomi had heard that that the famine in Bethlehem was over and that God had had been providing for them, and so she thought, it's time to return home. This is where we can find uh, sustenance, and so they decide to journey back, and in this decision, Ruth makes a statement in chapter 16 uh, to Naomi, which is one of the most uh, beautiful pictures of commitment in all of the Bible. Here's what she says. Ruth replied to Naomi, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you, for wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Now, that's a key verse from chapter 1 that really connects in to what we will be seeing in chapter 2. Ruth makes a commitment. Ruth turns her back on the land of Moab. In fact, it shows us here that she even turns her back on the gods, the religion of Moab, and she puts it all on Naomi. She is going with Naomi. Her people will be my people. Your God, Naomi, will be my God. There is a faith element that's happening here, a trust as she moves forward. And what we saw last week is that when it seems that God is furthest from us, 
he may very well be laying the foundation for one of the greatest displays of his faithfulness. It goes back to the first week when we looked at covenant love, loyal love, hesed uh, is the Hebrew word that we looked at. We saw last week this promise. God is not far away, and he has not forgotten you. So we ended a very depressing chapter one, but yet with a hope that God had not forgotten Naomi or Ruth, and that indeed he, uh, he had a plan for them. So we're going to see that unfold as we jump in to chapter two. We're going to walk through these verses together uh, like we did last week and then make some, uh, some observations at the end. Let's begin in chapter two, verse one. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. So now we have another, another individual, another character, if you will, in the story that emerges. And this, uh, this man, Boaz, we're, to, we're told, is, uh, uh, is from the clan of Elimelech, uh, from the family of Elimelech, so an extended relative. So, so in, the, the, uh, in the society at that time, you would have had individuals and families, and families would have been a part of cl- a clan. We would reference that as extended relatives, and then that, those clans would make up a tribe. And so within this clan... Boaz is a relative of Elimelech, which is very important as we see what will unfold in the verses that will follow. Now, Boaz is described as a prominent man of noble character. So there's two things out of that description that we see. Uh, First of all, he is likely one who is wealthy. He has land. He's in charge of a harvest. He has servants, male and female, that are working uh, his land. And so he's, he's likely someone with substantial means. It's referenced here as being prominent. But also his character is described, a noble character. We're going to see that Boaz is a man of integrity, a man who knows God, a man who has a heart for God. It's going to come through even in the way that he speaks, in the way that he identifies the needs of others around him. He's not self-focused. And in fact, he's very generous as well. Verse 2, Ruth the Moabitess asked Naomi, Will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? Naomi answered her, Go ahead, my daughter. So if you remember, the end of chapter 1 said that, that, uh, that they returned to Bethlehem during harvest time. And there was a provision in the law of God that if there was someone who was destitute, someone who was in need, that they had a provision to enter a field and follow the harvesters, picking up whatever may have been left over. Uh, the, the landowners were, were commanded to leave the corners of the fields untouched so that those in need could go and, and have uh, some harvest themselves. And so uh, this, was, this was, again, something that, that God had established in order to care for those who are in need. But she says here in verse 2, I need to find favor with someone. And the reason is because she was a foreigner. So she's going to have to have just the right person that would say, okay, I will welcome you into my field and apply this this principle from God's law to you so that you can have provision. She knew that someone was going to have to have favor for her so that she would be granted in. 
Verse 3, Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. So this is the second time the author is telling us the family connection because it's, it's an important integral part of the account here. But uh, I, I like the, the way the author says here that, that she happened to be in the portion of the field. Do you catch what the author is trying to convey? She just happened to be in the field, happened to be in Boaz's field. Boaz happened to be related to Naomi's uh, deceased husband, Elimelech. All of this just happened to be. So, so the author's building the story and hoping that we will see that God is at work directing her steps. Remember the idea of providence. We're seeing it unfold here in verse 3. Nothing happens by accident in the economy of God. Nothing. Everything is happening by appointment. And that is the case in her life. And it's also a truth that you and I, we can be looking for to see how God arranges events and circumstances and, and, and people that we meet. He's, he's working out His plan. And it gives us great comfort to know that God is a God of providence, that He sees beforehand. He arranges circumstances and timing as He chooses. Verse 4, later, when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they replied. So Boaz shows up in the field, and he speaks to the, the harvesters, the laborers. And do you notice what comes out of his mouth at the very beginning? The Lord be with you. Words of faith coming out. Words of, 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 of a belief in God. Words of blessing to those who are present. You know, you can tell a lot about someone based on the words that come out of their mouth. In fact, Jesus even spoke of, of, of one's heart and, and the, the, the words being an overflow of one's heart. Well, we get a picture here of the noble character of Boaz, even in these few words that are recorded. Verse 5, Boaz asked his servant, who was in charge of the harvesters? Whose young woman is this? He's specifically asking, where is she from? Who is she related to? Which family or which clan is she a part of? I don't recognize her. Who is she? And here we see the tension being set off immediately because uh, if you notice in verse 6 that she's going to be spoken of by where she is from. The servant answered, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. You notice the emphasis there? We saw this last week as well. Great emphasis on, on Moab and where, where she had come from. Again, thinking of the Moabites as being historical enemies of the Israelites. And so tension is, is already uh, potential here. Verse 7, she asked, Will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles behind the harvesters? So the worker is quoting Ruth. She came and has been on her feet since early morning, except that she rested a little in the shelter. So here we have Ruth coming in, asking if she can gather some of the grain, and that she has been working and, and, and collecting what she was allowed to take. 
And then Boaz comes in. He's the wealthy Israelite landowner, and he begins uh, to inquire about her to get information. Uh, He would have been in the society of that day, someone that would have been really high, right, on the order of importance in the eyes of the people. And you contrast that with a lady who is coming from from Moab being uh, viewed on the other end of the spectrum, Uh, someone who's in need, someone who is... uh, uh, who is, is not from there, a foreigner. But then this man speaks to Ruth. Look at verse 8. Listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field, and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. Now, we may not get the full weight of what has just been communicated to Ruth, but she's understanding that what is coming out of his mouth is absolutely shocking. I mean, we've already talked about the difference in social status that they would have had, but now we have a man saying, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. I want you to stay in, in my field uh, they aren't gonna. They aren't gonna harm you or harass you. And in fact, if you want something to drink, here's some jars of water over here that the men have filled. Now, think about this. Who would have typically filled the the the, the water jars? It would have probably been a, a if if there was a foreign woman that was present, that would have been her job. But now she's told, hey, you drink from the water that the Israelite men have filled. It's all yours. And so she would have been shocked by the reception that she was receiving from Boaz. She is seeing his graciousness and kindness. Look at verse 10. She fell face down, bowed to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor with you so that you notice me, although I am a foreigner? Again, the the tension is still there. She knows she's not from there. She's not part of that. She's not entitled to anything that's there. No entitlement whatsoever. What he gives to her is purely kindness, or we might say grace, giving her something that she could not have earned or deserved. The main question of chapter 2 is right there. Why have I found favor with you? You see, Ruth needed someone to show her favor, as we said. And now she's shocked by his generosity. She probably feels very unworthy. Maybe she feels very unlovable. Maybe she is is, is just very self-conscious of her cultural acceptability, or lack thereof, I should say. Her unworthiness to be loved as a widowed foreigner who has absolutely nothing. That's the condition that she was in as she walked into the field. But her response is probably as close to anything as a response to grace that we will see here. Only can one respond to the grace of Christ when they recognize, when we recognize that 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 in and of ourselves, we really are unlovable, aren't we? In and of ourselves, we are very distant from God. But he has brought us near. 
And it's by his grace, and it's by his mercy. So we're already seeing a gospel picture right here in the interaction that Boaz is having with Ruth to say, just as Christ has loved us, as unlovable as we are, right? He has loved us and brought us near. Look at verse 11. Boaz answered her, everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. So Boaz already has heard something about her. Now, he didn't recognize her when he came to his field, but her reputation, her good reputation had preceded her. How you left your father and mother and your native land and how you came to a people you didn't previously know. May the Lord reward you for what you have done, and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. And this is a powerful part of the chapter here. Boaz is commending her, and Boaz is also speaking about her relationship with God. He's commending her because of her radical abandonment of one life. She left behind the land of Moab. Any extended relatives that she had were left in the other country. And by faith, she put her trust in the God of Naomi. And she said that. We read that verse earlier. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. This is the commitment that Boaz is uh, saying that he has understood. And don't miss the imagery there in verse 12. You have planted your life under the wings of the Lord, the real Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. This is the one that you have chosen. This is the one that you are following, and you are under his wings. May he reward you. May he protect you. This picture of, of the wings of the Lord covering her, keeping her. And we have to make that connection back to verse 16 of chapter 1. She followed after the Lord, and now the Lord was going to be faithful to her. This is the living God who would give her refuge. And it's under his wings that she will find that refuge, and she will find provision. Look at verse 13. My Lord, she said, I have found favor with you, for you have comforted and encouraged your servant. Although I am not like one of your female servants. Again, she's having this understanding. I, I know I'm not like the rest of them. I know I'm out of place. I know I don't belong here. But you're comforting me. And you're encouraging me. And again, we see a picture of the character of God at work through Boaz. We see a picture of the gospel. Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz told her, Come over here and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. Does that sound good? You know what came to mind? Sometimes we'll put some olive oil and balsamic vinegar on, on a plate with a little bit of pepper. Have you ever had that? Yeah, try that. That's what's coming to mind. I don't know exactly that's what they were doing there. I'm thinking, this doesn't sound bad, right? It's not like he's just tossing a piece of stale bread. He's saying, take the bread, dip it here, enjoy this. But it gets better. So she sat beside the harvesters, 
and he offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied, but what else does it say? And had some left over. Now, this is an important part of the account as well. Now, some might be saying, don't we have a nice romantic meal over roasted grain? Well, maybe we do. But it's more than just a meal. She's been invited to the table. There is fellowship happening there with those that she at one time had not been a part of. Now she was welcome to the table. And this idea where it says he offered her, some of the commentaries say it's, it's almost like you could use the word served her. That he is, he's, he's offering her, he's serving her, he's caring for her needs and providing something for her. So it's not just a Moabite foreigner woman that just happens to be sitting at the table. This is Boaz serving her. Don't miss this. It's a picture. He would have been viewed as the Lord of the harvest, okay? The Lord of the harvest serving the foreigner at his table. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but can we see a picture of the gospel here? The Lord of the harvest inviting those who are far off to his table as he serves them? Verse 15, when she got up to gather grain... Boaz ordered his young men, let her even gather grain among the bundles, and don't humiliate her. Pull out some stalks from the bundles for her, and leave them for her to gather. Don't rebuke her. So he's giving some clear instructions, because you might imagine that, that women in the fields, particularly foreign women, may have been mistreated, right? They may, have been, they may have been taken advantage of or abused. They could have been humiliated. He's saying, don't do any of that. But instead, these, these ideas of both protection and provision come to mind. The providence of God coming through the mindset and the actions of Boaz. Sometimes God's providence is seen through the generosity of others. God is providing through the, the kindness and generosity of someone to another, and God is the one behind it all. It's a picture of him at work in Boaz's life. Verse 17, Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gathered, and it was about 26 quarts of barley. Now, I'll just tell you, they left her a lot. One of the commentators said this would have been about 30, maybe as much as 50 pounds of barley. The average worker would have typically taken home about a pound or two. So, I mean, she was given, she was given like more than a month's supply in one day. And she packs it all back home. It says there in uh, verse 18, she picked up the grain. She went into the town where her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out what she had left over from her meal and gave it to her. Now, don't you wish you could get a picture or a video clip of what Naomi's face must have looked like? You know, but remember, they, they weren't texting each other back and forth throughout the day like we do today. You know, she was probably worried. Did she make it to a field? Did someone invite her in? How did they treat her? Was she safe? Did she get anything at all? And then in the distance, she sees her. I mean, I'm guessing 30 to 50 pounds would have been noticeable from a distance, right? 
So she comes in and, and, and lays this down, and Naomi is clearly overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. It's above. It exceeds what she could have hoped for. Not only did she pull out all of that, but did you catch the end of that verse as well? That uh, What was it there? The end of verse 18, she brought out what she had left over from her meal. So it's almost like she had a to-go box too or something, I guess. Maybe some roasted grain that was already ready to eat. Amazing. Just the, the, the supply. How do you think Naomi's doing now? Do you remember how we left her in chapter 1? Naomi, whose name means what? Pleasant, came back to Bethlehem, and they said, oh, it's Naomi. And she said, don't call me that name. Don't call me Naomi. I'm not pleasant. Call me Mara. What does Mara mean? Bitter. She says, I'm bitter. She would already said in chapter 1, the hand of the Lord has been against me. Well, wait a minute. Look at chapter 2. She's now showing signs of life, isn't she? Showing signs of faith. She has now had her situation radically changed. And we're going to see in these next verses that she has gone from being empty to being full, from being bitter to being blessed. Remember the promise last week? God is not far away and he has not forgotten you. Well, here's the fulfillment of it right here. Verse 19, her mother-in-law said to her, where did you gather barley today? And where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. Ruth told her mother-in-law whom she had worked with and said, the name of the man I worked for with today is Boaz. Now, it's interesting because Ruth knew the name Boaz, but she didn't really know all the connection, did she? It's not, it's not, not, not shared with us here in the text that she had any connection. Although, Ruth, excuse me, Naomi knew exactly who Boaz was. She knew the family connection. And so all of this is beginning to come together. Verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may the Lord bless him. That's the second time she's used this phrase. You can see her faith, right, building and growing. Because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, the man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. Your version might say kinsman redeemers. Now we've seen his noble character. We now see evidence of this with his kindness. But we also are given this phrase family redeemer or kinsman redeemer. And there again are passages specifically in, uh, in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, where, where uh, God's law has protected those in need. Now, we, we've already seen that one of those protections was to be able to walk through a field at the time of harvest. Well, this one's a little different. This is saying that, that, that an extended relative can come into the picture when someone loses a husband. When there is a widow, when there is a, a child in need, an orphan, there is provision there for an extended family member to come in. And, and in, in some cases, it means that they will buy land so that, so that the land can continue to provide. In some cases, it means that marriage will take place to, to provide in, in, in that way. And so we're going to see this idea of kinsman redeemer unfold in the next couple of chapters, but it's a key part of what is happening here. 
verse 21, Ruth the Moabitess said, he also told me, stay with my young men until they have finished all of my harvest. So Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, my daughter, it is good for you to work with this female servant so that nothing will happen to you in another field. So she's giving her advice about, about the company that she's keeping and, and the position to put herself in. Verse 23, Ruth stayed close to Boaz's female servants and gathered grain until the barley and the wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Well, Ruth and Naomi had experienced what we said at the beginning was the provision of God. The hand of providence was fully on display in their lives. And so as we, as we, as we take chapter 2 into consideration, uh, let us be reminded that we said last week and probably the last two weeks that the book of Ruth is a small story, but it's within the larger story of the Bible, right? That there is a meta-narrative, a big story of God's love, a big story of God's provision, a big story of God's redemption. It's, it's, it's pictured for us in this small story, but it, it, it really is highlighting the story of the Bible, the meta-narrative that's there from Genesis to Revelation, we see it. And so in, in looking at this story, let me ask you, what can we learn about the character and nature of God? What can we learn about the gospel of Jesus Christ, which this is foreshadowing in chapter 2? So I want to give you four things for us to consider and for us to uh, seek to understand together. The first one is this, God welcomes the undeserving to join his family. He welcomes the undeserving. Ruth was entitled to nothing in that land. She could lay claim to nothing. She was, in a very real sense, undeserving. But God, God welcomes those who are undeserving. Let me emphasize why it was so unusual that she would have been there. Deuteronomy 23 says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the Lord's assembly. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, may ever enter the Lord's assembly. Specifically, the Moabites were not welcome. These were uh, very immoral, sexually immoral people, and they were idolaters. And God didn't want their ways to become the ways of his people. Now, we know in the book of Judges that a lot of that was happening, right? But this is one of the reasons why she would not have been typically allowed in. These were ancient enemies of God. Yet the law of God also had a provision for Ruth to draw near. Don't miss this. Deuteronomy chapter 10. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. Now, would she be fatherless? She left her land, didn't she? If her parents were still alive, she was no longer with them. Is she a widow? Yes, her husband had died and loves the resident alien. Would she be that? She meets all the criteria. Giving him food and clothing. You are also to love the resident alien since you, Israel, were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. So even though she didn't have access due to her heritage, she was given access through God's compassion. Even his Old Testament compassion is on display in Deuteronomy 10. 
It's a picture, again, of the gospel. You and I, did we have an entitlement? Did we have an access to God on our own? Had we earned it? Had we deserved it? Absolutely not. Ephesians chapter 2 says that because of our sinful nature, verse 12, at that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. That's our condition. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, and this is beautiful, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of of Jesus Christ. We were far away. We we were Ruth. We were in the land of Moab. We were far distant away from the promises, the protection, the provision of God. But in Christ, he brought us near. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. In our natural state, we were enemies of God. Ephesians 2 verse 3 We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. We were by nature, by nature, we were children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, you like to underline in your Bible, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, Again, big picture of the Bible. He made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Not what you've deserved, not what you've been entitled to, but by his grace, you've been saved. You were dead, now you are alive. This is the gospel that's given, that's offered to those who will come to him. You see, Ruth made a decision. She says, I'm I'm leaving the land of Moab. I'm leaving those gods behind, the false gods behind, and I'm going to this God. And I think there will be some people in this room this morning that need to leave the gods of Moab, the gods of this world. You need to turn your back on the things of this world and turn your attention to Jesus Christ, the one who will bring you near and give you life and give you new identity in him. Romans 8, one of my favorite passages. Look at how it starts. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You like those words? No condemnation. Say that with me. No condemnation. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who are walking now in the direction of God. Well, grace has opened the door. You and I, we were alienated from God. But by his grace, we have been brought near and we have been adopted into his family. We have a seat at his table. God welcomes the undeserving to join his family. Second, 
God shelters his people under his wings. For some of you, you needed verse 12 today. And the choir sang about verse 12. And Dennis encouraged us about verse 12. That we are under the wings of the Almighty. And some of us needed that reminder today. That when we come to him, he is a God of providence. He is a God that cares for us. He sees where we are. He knows what we've been through. And he is not leaving us alone. We are under the shelter of his wings. Even the psalmist wrote beautiful descriptions about the refuge that is found in him. I think as we, think, as we consider God's care for Ruth and Naomi, that we, we have to at least pause and recognize that God cares for the needs of the poor, that God wants to work through those who have to provide for those who have not, that we individually and as families should be seeing opportunities around us, either locally or maybe even, even uh, overseas where there are people that are in need that we can contribute to? Do we as a church contribute locally and globally? Yes, we do. We could give examples of that. Can we do more? Yes. Yes, we can and we should. And when we do, let us have the heart of Boaz, which I believe is really a reflection of the heart of God. So Ruth has traveled from Moab to Bethlehem with nothing and with no one that could provide for her. But she hopes to go out and get a little bit of food, but she comes back with a feast, doesn't she? Not only sitting at the table, but being served at the table by the Lord of the harvest. Don't miss the picture here of the provision of God. Number three, God moves his people from bitterness to blessedness. This is another important point. We see it in Naomi's life. We see in, in chapter one, she says, God's hand is against me. Don't call me Mar, uh, Naomi, call me Mara, call me bitter. That described her attitude, didn't it? It described her outlook, but now her words have changed. Her outlook has changed. Her attitude has changed. She's now saying things like, may the Lord bless him. You see, she is seeing the covenant love of God fulfilled, and she has gone from emptiness to fullness, from bitterness to blessedness. It reminds me of Psalm 30. It says, you turned my lament into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness so that I can sing to you and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. A church family, can I ask you, do you have anything to sing about? Do you have anything that would turn your countenance from bitterness to blessedness? Is there anything that you could recount and reflect upon in your life that you could say, I have reason to praise the Lord. He has turned my mourning into dancing. And number four, God invites you to stay in his field. Did you hear Boaz tell Ruth to stay here? Did you hear how he gave her assurances of protection and provision? Well, do you think God is telling us today, don't go back to the fields of Moab. Stay here. Stay in my field. Because you see, we have the choice. We can go back to the fields of Moab. And maybe some people that will come through our doors today have been living and residing in the fields of Moab. 
And they've been caught up maybe with forms of idolatry or immorality, forms that, that, that speak of materialism and sensuality, maybe even addiction. Let me tell you, church family, those fields bring harm and danger, harm and danger. They give false promises of loneliness and heartache, but there is a God who offers security. You can even use the word satisfaction. You can even see that with the provision and protection, joy is found. So friend, if you have been wandering in other fields, if you've been running after other things, can I invite you home today? Can I invite you to the fields of the Lord to draw near to him, to come and, and receive what only he alone can provide? By his grace, he calls your name. He draws you to himself, and he gives shelter under his wings. As we go to the Lord in prayer, I want to invite our prayer and encouragement team to make their way to the tables. Maybe today you have a question about what it means to follow Christ, to submit your life to him. There are people at these tables, they will be there shortly, that you can speak with about what it means to come unto the Lord, to have a new identity, a new life in Him. For some of you, you may have a, a burden that you're carrying, and you may need someone to, to help you pray through something. They're there for you. During this next song or when the song is over, the invitation is for you to stop. Stop by one of those tables and do business with the Lord today. Well, as the ushers come forward to receive the offering, would you pray with me? Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the picture of Jesus Christ that shines through in the book of Ruth. Father, I pray today that you will take these words that we've read, that you will apply them to individual needs, that you will reshape thinking, that you will reshape affections, and help us, Lord, to look to you. Help us to reside under the shelter of your wings. And Lord, as we give back to you today, we are reminded of the many, many ways that you have provided for us. So with grateful hearts, we give back. And we ask your blessing now. For it's in Christ's name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. See